spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. A piece of your childhood returns, but with a bit of a twist. It's episode 378 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I'm talking about HBO Max's Jellystone now airing, of course, on HBO Max. And I'm going to talk to C.H. Greenblatt, who is one of the minds behind the show, also voices of some of the characters as well, to talk about you know, how this whole thing came together, what it's like having all these iconic characters in one place. There's so many things I can't wait to talk to him about. Also, going to get my thoughts on Jungle Cruise, the new Disney live-action adventure movie. And I actually got a chance to attend a press conference. You know, Dwayne Rock Johnson was there, Emily Blunt, and a few other members of the cast as well. I'll share some tidbits from that, too. There's going to go back to Comic-Con at home and talk about a couple big stories there. And yes, that Scholar Johansson story, got to talk about that as well. Also, a brand new sponsor on the show this week, Upstart. If if you've got some debt or you want to lower your monthly payments, I've got a great chance for you to be able to do just that. Before I move on, I just want to take a couple minutes to thank you. If you reached out for congratulations, my my wife and I had our beautiful baby girl over the last week and everybody's home and happy and she's just a wonderful addition to our family. And thank you so much for sending in congratulations and your kind words. I really really appreciate that. But speaking of kids, hey, let's get this thing moving. Let's talk to CH Greenblatt about Jellystone, the new animated series from HBO Max, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kari Walgren, the voice of Haruko in FLCO, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So excited to jump into the Hanna-Barbera world. Jellystone is going to be premiering on HBO Max on July the 29th, and oh, I'm so excited to talk to this guy about this thing that he's had. I mean, he's been living with it a lot longer than we have right now. It's C.H. Greenblatt. Carl, how you doing, man? Great. It's great to be here. So, I mean, in the statement that came out when the release date came out, you actually said that you have a deep love for these characters. So who were some of your favorites over the years? I would I would say I was a child of, obviously, in, I was born in 72. So for me, it was like the 70s and 80s. I grew up watching Laugh Olympics and Wacky mm-hmm. Races and Grape Ape and Captain Caveman. Scooby-Doo, Jabberjaw, a lot of those, you know, the Hair Bear Bunch. Uh, there were a lot of, I, I kind of like like that era. It was my childhood to me. Like, obviously, I was very aware of Yogi and Snagglepuss, and, and they were all in those episodes, and I liked them. But I think it was it was more of those original characters that came out in the in the 70s and 80s that really connected to me. Blue Falcon and Dino Mutt, and oh, I love those guys so much. <laughs> Everybody's got their little piece, too, which is what I love yeah. about Hanna-Barbera. That's one of the cool things about it. But I grew up with these characters just like you did. I was a little bit later than you, but not not yeah. too much later. So how did you kind of approach balancing, bringing something new to these characters, but also keeping the essence of who they were at their core as well? It, well, it was a very conscious decision at the beginning of when I first started developing this. Originally, it was going to be a bunch of shorts. It, it, it was it was the idea was to do a ton of shorts, kind of like what they were doing with the um, uh, Looney Tunes shorts. And so I sat down and I was like, all right, let me start going through all the old things and kind of breaking everything down. And I had two worlds. I had like the action hero world and I had the funny animal world. And I was kind of figuring all this out. And then the more time I spent with them, the more I started to realize that a lot of the fun was kind of combining them and putting them into the same play areas and seeing like, well, if I put this guy with this guy, that could be really cool. And if I did this with this, and then it started to become this whole town. And then the executives were like, well, that's that's kind of a whole city. And I was like, oh, geez, that's like a show. So if it's a show, who's the main character? So then I said, well, if it's an ensemble show, let me kind of boil it down to like a, a core main group. So who would be my main people that I could really center this show around? And so, you know, obviously it's like, well, it's got to be Yogi, Cindy, Boo Boo. Like they have to, that's iconic beyond belief. And not only are they iconic, but but they really were, especially Yogi. Yogi was one of the more fleshed out characters. And I think that's why he's endured so much. You know, he was such a strong personality 
that I was like, I don't need to do anything to that. Yogi works. He's great. I just, I can figure out more about him, but I don't need to change anything about it. Boo Boo, Boo Boo was always a little thinner, I think. So there was room to sort of explore who Boo Boo is in relation to Yogi, again, without changing that dynamic at all. And then Cindy was like, well, she's just his girlfriend. That's nothing. I got to do something more with her. So I really have to figure out who she is so that she can stand on her own next to Yogi and Boo Boo. And I was like, okay, that's one group. So then I said, okay, well, what about like Oggy Doggy Doggy Daddy? And one of the things I wanted to do with the show was looking at all of the characters. I was like, man, there's really no girls in this world. And 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 if I was making a show from scratch for myself, I would definitely make a show that had a lot more female characters. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to gender swap some of these characters to make it a little to make the parody a little better and make sure that you know, we have really funny female characters on the show. So um, Oggy Doggy was perfect for that. I could make her a little girl. And then I had this funny idea of like, well, what if her dad is just this like crazy helicopter dad? Because you kind of go back to the old version of him and he loved his son. Is like, well, what if like he's just like almost obsessively, crazily hovering over his daughter to the point where it's like, and she loves it just as much. And it's like mm -hmm. this weird, almost unhealthy <laughs> like crazy relationship and that that started to get really funny and really fun and everybody clued into that really fast so that became the second group and then i said okay well if we have this town and everybody's got a job and yogi's the doctor uh how can i use huckleberry hound and i thought well he's kind of like the the heart of hanna barbera in a way when it's like one of the very first if not i think the first character like he's the mayor of the town. He's the guy who represents the heart and soul of Jellystone, who loves it more than anything. And we talked about like that he's, you know, this down home country, genuine guy. He's not a politician. He's just, he loves this town more than anybody else. And that's why he's the mayor. It's, it's, you know, it's like, he's the face of this, of this city. And so it was great. Cause it's like, we could have stories that he's, he's got some new crazy idea for the town. Something's happening. They're always going to him. So he became like the next cornerstone of the show. And then we talked about Top Cat. We're like, we gotta have Top Cat and his gang. And we had to kind of rethink, not, not Top Cat himself, because Top Cat, again, was a pretty solid character. But then it became like, well, who's Brain? Who's Fancy Fancy? Who's Choo Choo? We don't really know much about these characters. They were all kind of generic original. So we spent a lot of time kind of talking about them. And then, you know, I liked the idea that Top Cat's the guy in town who can kind of get you what you need. Don't ask any questions where it came from. And he's got a scam at all times. And, you know, it was it was like, oh, perfect. He'll fit in just right. We could do fun stories with him. And and again, it was like a story of like, they're not thieves. They don't steal. They scam. It's very different. It's like, it's it's the challenge. It's the, it's like a code. Like, why pay for it if you can get it for free? You know, and so so that became a really fun character to write. Then there's El Kabong, and I was like, oh, originally we were going to have him be quick draw, but then the more he talked about it, I said, well, what if he's just always El Kabong? It's basically like, like Lego Batman. Like he's just, he lives as this character 100% of the time, and he's just the Batman of the town, but he's also like the school teacher. So those started to lock in, and then I think the last main group was Jabberjaw. And with Jabberjaw, again, this was a case of, I didn't want to just recreate Curly from the Three Stooges again. It's sort of a copy of a copy. Right, right. You know, to do Curly doing Rodney Dangerfield. I'm like, oh, I loved Jabberjaw as a kid, but I don't, it's just, it's it's like an impression of an impression, you know? Right, and it's not now either, really. If you're, if you, if you if you're a honest, kid, so, who's yeah. Curly? Who's Rodney exactly. Dangerfield? Like, who like, are these people? <laughs> so, so I'm like, you know what? This is the perfect chance to basically do a fresh character. And, and so Jabberjaw is one of the most reworked characters in that way because of that. So I was like, you know what? I want, I want Jabberjaw to be a woman. I want her to be really funny. I want to do this I Love Lucy kind of character where she's working with Loopy DeLoop, who's also a, a girl at Magilla's clothing store. And it's just like their fun adventures, you know, and, and that was great. And she's boy crazy. And she's always sort of like, you know, trying to like, She's just sort of a hot mess. And it still feels like a character that you would think of as Jabberjaw. She's kind of loud and talkative and brash, but she doesn't do the nyuk 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 stuff. You know, like, it's just, it's different. Um, and she's not solving, you know, mysteries and, and all that. So Jabberjaw was, was one of the biggest changes, but, <coughs> you know, you got to let go of some things. I think I, it's, I, I, I had to make a decision early on to be like, I can't be beholden 
to all this stuff or else I'm not going to be able to make decisions that make sense to me, you know, and that, that worked towards my taste. That totally show. makes sense too. And I, I actually love what you did with Top Cat, by the way. I thought that was, I, I, I got to see that episode. That was amazing. But I, I like that you mentioned Cindy because she really stood out to me in the episodes that I got to see anyway. Yeah. And, and Grace Helbig does such a great job with the character as well and has so many hilarious scenes. Now, what was the casting process like finding just the right voices for sometimes multiple characters, which isn't easy? Yeah, well, it's interesting with Cindy. So when we first did casting for Cindy, we went for the traditional Southern Cindy voice. And we got lots of great actresses and they, and they were all, it was all fine. And I remember showing it to my bosses and they were like, and to their credit, this was great. They said, you know what? Go wider. Don't, don't worry about the Southern thing. Just do, do something that you want to do. And I was like, really? And so, and that was really nice to have that level of freedom and support from above where they basically said, just make the show as good as it can be, make it funny and don't feel like you have to recreate the past. Nobody at Warner Brothers ever felt like, there were, no one was ever precious about it. They just said, just make it awesome, make it fun, and do what your gut tells you to do. So then we we went out with casting and I heard Grace's voice and and I just, it didn't sound like there was like a, a, a nice raspiness to it. It was just interesting and it sounded really different. And Grace hadn't really done much voiceover work before. So this was new to her and she really took to it. And, and you know, as it went on, she got more confident and really, brought so much to that character um you know and we kind of would figure out more about cindy because we were talking about like well who is she and i liked that she's kind of this she's she's really smart but the rule was nobody could be everybody had to be dumb on the show in their own way you know even though she's smarter than in some ways she's dumb in other ways she's she's sort of a hot mess and a lot of whereas yogi is kind of more the typical surgeon she's kind of more of the mad scientist and and this like weird inventor and, but doesn't always think through like what that means for things. You know, we have a really fun episode where she she's just overbooking everything in her life. And so to gain more time, she basically starts freezing people with a, a jello gun that she makes and turns them all into gelatin. I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm yeah. so glad you brought that up. I love that episode. <laughs> oh, you got to see that one? Yeah. Oh yeah, that was one of the ones I got to see. I loved it. That was my yeah. favorite one that I got to see actually. Oh, good. Yeah, like it, that to me, like that really helped define who she was. Um, and, and so again, it's like saying like, we have to make Cindy, like she has to be able to hold her own in an episode beyond Yogi and those people. And, and that was really fun. You know, it's, I feel like Yogi, Yogi's easy in the sense that like, you know how to make Yogi funny, but to make somebody that was never funny that way is that's a, I like that challenge, you know? And so, so once I had that core group, I was like, all right, most of our stories are really going to focus on these people. We also had the other kids of like Shagrug and, and Yaki because it was like, oh, let's do some fun stories with them and Augie and some kid-centric stories. But it was sort of like most of our stories are either going to focus on those people or kind of the whole town. Um, and, and you know, because there's so many characters. But then they would interact with everybody. Like, yeah, you, you have a story with Cindy, but she's going to be interacting with Jabberjaw and Yogi and other people in that episode. You're going to have a story with El Kabong, but he's going to interact with, um, you know, the kids and and five other people so it, it should always feel like this big ensemble show but at the same time it i think a lot of the best stories we'd always say like well, what's the emotional drive in this story even if it's something dumb and silly it's like there's still got to be something there to hang your hat on we have an episode where they're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the town and they discover that the um the founder kind of lied about everything and that sort of breaks everyone's spirit and in, in believing in the magic of Jellystone. So Huckleberry Hound feels like the only way to save the soul of the town is to find like the new face of who represents Jellystone the best. And they have this big contest, but it's really his drive of like, if he doesn't find this person, he feels like the town will fall into ruin. Like he, and, and it comes out of his love for what he wants us to be. And so like each story had to have that core of something emotional driving the character, even if it's dumb and silly. You know, and I think that's something I've always done in, in shows that I've, I've written. It's like, it can't just be gags. There's got to be something pinning it down underneath it. Sometimes it's just crazy chaos, but I, I find I tend to like them more when there's a little more meat on that bone. No doubt about that. And you guys yeah. will see it for yourself. There's so much going on in this show. Jellystone premieres Thursday, July the 29th on HBO Max. You are going to love it. It's 
Carl C.H. Greenblatt. Man, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So when I was talking to Carl off the air after the interview, he was like, you know, if there's an episode you don't like, check out another one because I think that you're going to find something that you're going to like in this first season of Jellystone. And I couldn't agree more. There are so many different kinds of episodes that I even saw of this show. And you do get the classic vibe of these characters with some updated stories, some updated humor as well. The looks may be a little bit different in some instances, but I think a lot of these changes work. And you can see for yourself when you watch Jellystone, the first season airing right now on HBO Max. Again, thanks to C.H. Greenblatt for joining me this week to talk about Jellystone from HBO Max. Up next, we're going to dive into the world of Jungle Cruise from Walt Disney Pictures. Going to have my review of that movie spoiler-free next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Peter David, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to set sail on a magical adventure. My spoiler-free review of Disney's Jungle Cruise. I also got a chance to attend a press conference with Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt, and Jack Whitehall, and some of the other members of the cast. And while I can't share the audio with you, I can send you t- tell you some little tidbits from that press conference. And one thing I noticed immediately from this movie was the chemistry between not just Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt, but with Jack Whitehall as well, who plays McGregor's. They they spend a lot of time together in this movie. That much I could tell you. And just the chemistry between those three, especially Emily and Dwayne, is palpable. Let me tell you. And they talked a lot about that chemistry. And even Emily and Dwayne were saying in the press conference how once they finally kind of met each other, they were like friends for life instantly. They could tell that there was a real rapport there, even though it took a little convincing to get Emily to join the movie at first, but but Dwayne said he was instantly a yes because he was a he was always a big fan of the of the Disney ride. He said this is Walt Disney's baby, the Jungle Cruise ride, and not only that, he said the script was in a good place. They found a good director, and you know you just really saw the potential in this. And that was one thing that I wondered about when I was getting ready to watch Jungle Cruise. I'm like, okay, it looks like it could be fun, but where is this going to go really? How? Do you put a good story together with this? And I will say that this is one of the few times where you don't really get a good sense of how fun this movie is going to be based on the trailers. And I'm not saying the trailers were bad. I'm just saying that what you get in the actual movie is not quite what you're seeing in the trailers. The trailers hammer home a lot of action, which there is plenty of action. Don't get me wrong. But there are a lot of funny moments in this movie as well, as a matter of fact, they actually ended the press conference by sharing some of their favorite bad puns or dad jokes or whatever. And I got to tell you, there's some there's some winners in this movie. And as somebody who lives their life through dad jokes, basically, I could tell you that, that that there were some really impressive ones in this. And actually, during the press conference, Jack Whitehall was talking about how they actually had the freedom to, you know, kind of ad lib and improv some of these as well. And some of them actually made it into the movie, which I think was really, really cool. And I can only imagine they, they actually said a whole other movie could be made just from the ad libs alone. It probably wouldn't, it probably wouldn't still be PG 13 or PG, but you know, it, it, they could make another movie if they wanted to. And I, and I got to say that McGregor was a very important character in this movie. Don't throw that away because the relationship that McGregor's character has with Emily Blunt's character of Lily was so important for the drive for both of them. And you could tell that these were just two characters that just needed each other. You know, they needed Frank by proxy and they ended up developing a rapport with him throughout the movie. But at the same time, you could tell these were two characters that needed each other. And then later on in the movie, there's a very great scene with Frank and McGregor that's very meaningful. It's a huge spoiler. I won't tell you exactly what it is, but Dwayne and Jack both talked about in the press conference wanting to get this scene right. This was something that they absolutely wanted to get right, and and I think that they absolutely did. I think they did a great job. But I think that Frank is an interesting character in this movie, too, because, you know, Dwayne Johnson's a likable guy anyway, and I think that Frank is a likable character to a degree, 
But there's also a little bit of back and forth there where he, this is also a character that can kind of frustrate you. You know, he's a little cocky. He's a little arrogant. But at the same time, he just likes to have a fun guy. I won't go as far as saying con man. Won't go that far. But it's it's interesting how he starts and how he how he progresses in this movie. It, it reminded me very much of Maui in Moana, who was voiced by Dwayne Johnson as well in that certain respect. You know, Frank's no Frank is not the the two the two characters are not alike necessarily, but that's the vibe I got when I was thinking about Frank. And the 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 Indiana Jones card was played a lot during the press conference too where Indiana Jones was brought up as a comparison for Jungle Cruise and wanting to capture that action adventure aspect. But if I'm being honest, I don't I wouldn't necessarily consider this Indiana Jones. And that's not a bad thing either, by the way. Certainly Emily Blunt and Dwayne called her the female Indiana Jones, which 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 I, apparently she doesn't like. And but, you know, and there are a lot of indie esque moments in this. But to me, when I was watching this, it kind of made me think of the early to mid 2000s action adventure movies that Disney was putting out. Something like National Treasure. When I saw National Treasure for the first time, and, you know, it was just fun. And there were there was a good cast. And you just kind of sat back and enjoyed the ride. You didn't. You don't overthink it. You don't need this deep, meaningful story, which I'm not saying it didn't. That either one of these movies doesn't have one, but you're not in it for that. You're in it for the action. You're in it for the fun, and you're in it for these great character moments. And you're in it for these villains, like like Jesse Plemons, who plays a great villain in Prince Joachim. And I got to tell you, this is a guy you're definitely gonna hate him. But just the way that he's presented as this very like throwback action adventure villain is something that I really, really loved. And then you've got Aguirre, too, who's played by Edgar Ramirez. And it was funny because they were trying to decide whether or not he's a villain. Dude, you're a villain. Okay, (laughs) I can just tell you somebody that watched the movie, you're a villain, whether you like it or not. I mean, you could even throw Paul Giamatti's Nilo into the mix as well, which was, again, just another one of those fun foil type characters. And there were a lot of other secondary characters. Verona Falcons, Trader Sam, I thought was another really, really fun character in this movie. And if you don't love Proxima, I don't know if, I don't know if we could be friends. I'm just going to say that right now. If you going into this movie, if you don't love Proxima, I'm not sure where, where we can go from here, but there is a good story. There is a the, the thing that they're after, what it can do is a big, big deal. And there are certain decisions that are made surrounding this thing that they're looking for that I'm, I think will create some interesting discussion. What happens in the final the, the final climax of this movie, I think is something that will create some discussion. And maybe you'll agree with it. Maybe you won't. Maybe it'll frustrate you. Maybe it's something that'll, that'll lo- that you'll love. I'm very curious to see what the reaction is going to be now that this movie is out there and people have gotten a chance to see it because I was kind of back and forth on how I felt about the ending. I, I uh, overall thought I thought the movie was a ton of fun. And that is at the end of the day, all I really wanted from this movie anyway. It's not too cheesy like like we're just going to take this Disney ride and make a movie out of it and make it just seem like the ride. No, no, no. They put a lot of thought into what went into this story clearly. And it wasn't corny. I didn't think it was corny at all. I thought it was a fun action adventure movie that Disney's just used to making, but it had its own unique feel to it. And it had top notch characters to throw on top of that too. It is a fun action adventure movie that the whole family can enjoy. And quite frankly, What's wrong with that? So whether you're watching it on Disney Plus with Premier Access or you're going to the theater, I'm telling you right now, Jungle Cruise is one that I think you're going to enjoy more than you expected to. Do not let this one pass you by. I think you're really going to enjoy Disney's Jungle Cruise on either Disney Plus or in theaters. This week, the Dan and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Upstart. Maybe the last year, year and a half, it's one of those times you've had to lean on the credit card a little bit more 
than you want to do. I've certainly been there, you know, having kids is expensive. And sometimes, you know, you got to get a lot of groceries and needs to go on the credit card. So I've seen my credit cards go up at times, certainly. And Upstart is here to help you with that. You know, stop dreading looking at those bills and get a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan from Upstart. But here's the thing. This isn't one of those things that, you know, tries to trap you and get you in trouble because unlike other lenders, Upstart actually considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan and a way to access affordable credit. You can actually get your funds as fast as one business day once you accept your loan. It could be maybe you're looking for something like a thousand, maybe a little more like towards fifty thousand. Upstart can help you with that. As a matter of fact, find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash nerdy. That's U-P-S-T-A-R-T dot com slash nerdy. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash nerdy to start getting your way back to financial freedom with Upstart. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Disney's Jungle Cruise. Up next, let's thumb through some pages of some interesting comics, shall we? What we're reading is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Carlos Magno, and you're listening to the Down and the Nerdy Podcast. Just trying to add to your pull box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And I wanted to actually start with something quite quite interesting from DC Comics. Batman Secret Files, Huntress number one. We've got Mariko Tamaki writing this one. David Lampham on the art. Trish Mulvihill on the colors. Rob Lee on the letters. And Irvin Rodriguez doing the cover. And this basically is a Huntress story. And she was actually, you know, just kind of helping Batman out on the streets and then ran into a criminal named Vile that actually, spoiler alert, infects her brain. Now, good news is, is that it seems like everything all is good, right? But then as you keep reading the issue, you kind of find out that things, depending on your perspective, might be better than good. For Huntress, is this a side effect of what's of what happened to her? Is this a brand new ability that's manifested itself? Is this going to be a good thing? Is it going to be a bad thing? It's kind of interesting, and also we get a very humanized side of Huntress as well in this issue, and it it kind of feels like that's something that's kind of been happening in the Batman world a lot lately, right? So you get to see Helena at home, you get to see Helena. In the streets and you get to see, you know, the determined badass that you kind of have grown to know and love throughout the years. But I have to say, I was a little bit more intrigued by the end of this story than I thought it was going to be. And what happens to her in the very beginning and how it plays out is actually something that I'm kind of curious to see if it does have a lasting effect. Because if it does... And she can learn to control it. And I'm not really going to spoil what that is. I've spoiled a little bit of this book already. I'm not going to do any more. But if she can kind of control what this is, that that might actually be something that we could really, she could really, really up her game if she wanted to. The art in this book is is pretty good as well. There's not a whole lot art-wise that needs to be done in this book. But what, what what's been given is is certainly good and and but the story to me is the star here and i really think that this has a chance to go somewhere unexpectedly good so batman secret files huntress number one from dc comics something you might want to give a chance to that you might not have thought to read otherwise now i'm going to move on to image comics and sweet paprika number one and Mirka Indolfo writing and doing the art for this one simon tesuto on the colors and fabio Amelia on the letters and this follows of course Paprika we get to see her at a very young age and a little bit of a spoiler here Paprika has become very successful as an adult she's a very accomplished publisher she's rich beyond her wildest dreams but what she doesn't have is the satisfaction of let's just say satisfaction and that is kind of something that is very much in Mirka Andolfo's 
wheelhouse as far as her stories have been concerned in the past. This is a, and she's, the thing with Paprika is, is she puts off this very rigid front, right? It's, it's very like, she's very like a Devil Wears Prada type boss, but when she gets home, She's been definitely a more of a devil wears almost nada kind of woman. And well, I mean, she's, you know, she's wearing PJs or something like that, but she's, you know, very casual and home and a very different person. And she had a very rigid upbringing, especially with her dad. That kind of plays a factor in the story as well. But it's one of those things like, do you want to be different or don't you? Do you want to present yourself differently or don't you? And do you want to be wanted? Or don't you is something that really is part of this story. And it's kind of, you know, introducing us as to whether or not she wants that to be the case. And something also happens, by the way, at the end of this issue that could actually change how she sees things and how she's able to see things based on something that happens towards the end of the story. So it's a little bit disturbing. You know, you know, to be quite honest, there's also another character in here named Dill who's really, really just annoying to me because he's like that playboy type guy. And that, and that drives me nuts a little bit. And he's very arrogant, maybe rightfully so. But there's something going on with this with this Dill character. I can't quite put my finger on it. I think it's got something to do with the sunglasses. And you'll see this when you read it. And I just think that there's something going on. There's more than definitely meets the eye, pun intended there, for sure. The art in this is spectacular. I will say there's a lot of great use of colors in this one as well. And just the character designs, I think they're, they're really cool. This is a really fun, playful book with a little bit of sexual energy to it as well. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. So if you want to spice up your pull box a little bit, it looks like Sweet Paprika Number 1 from Image Comics is something you will definitely want to add to it. It's going to do for what we're reading up next. There was a big story to talk about for nerd news this week. Let's get into it. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Apparently, court is now in session. It's time for nerd news, and the big news is not a recap of Comic-Con at home, but the fact that Scarlett Johansson is suing... Disney, and here's the reason why. Apparently, the lawsuit says that releasing Black Widow on Disney Plus was a breach of Johansson's contract. The complaint actually states that her contract guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release for Black Widow and says the agreement was breached, quote, without justification. Now, in follow-up to that, Disney has released their own statement saying that the lawsuit is sad. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to quote this. It says, quote, the lawsuit is especially sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, which was my, and, and now I want to make this very clear. I'm not taking a take sides here. I'm just going to give my opinion on the situation. It might sound like I'm taking sides, just my opinion. And you could take that for what it's worth. But when I read the language of this statement when it first came out from Johansson's group, I thought to myself, okay, you you really had something going until you said without justification because you basically set up Disney to give the statement that they gave. And that was just part of the statement that Disney gave and saying they said that she has been compensated above the 20 million that she's already been paid and things like of that nature, yada, yada, yada. And you've got the wall street journal saying that black widow made about 60 million bucks right away on Disney plus and Johansson's group is claiming that they could have made more money. Had the film just gone into theaters and look, here's the deal. And here's, what's going to be the problem with this too. First of all, black widow did make a pretty good amount of money at the box office under, under the circumstances it said pandemic records at the time. But here's the problem. We'll never know how much more or less this movie would have made at the box office. And I'll tell you why. Because the Disney Plus option has given people that wouldn't normally be able to get to a movie theater the ability for $30 on Disney Plus Premier Access to see a movie that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten a chance to see. I want you to just, as someone who just 
has has added a third child to my family. And, and, and again, maybe you're going to boo, maybe you say, oh, boo hoo for you and everybody that has kids. But I want you to understand and wrap your head around what it would cost a family like mine to go to a movie. Okay. So it would be my wife, myself, and three kids, right? You know how much movie tickets are. So for me to go to a movie with my family and, and you know, taught you out of concessions and all of those things, it would be easily a hundred to 200 bucks easily without even blinking an eye. And then you say, right, well, well, what are you taking the kids for? You just leave the kids at home. You can't take them to see Black Widow anyway, probably. Okay, so now I have to find a babysitter for three children. And, of course, my wife and I would go out, and obviously we'd have a good time, you know, probably get some dinner, see the movies, stuff like that. That a Babysitter for three kids? If you don't have kids and you don't realize how much babysitting costs, it ain't cheap. And not everybody's got a relative that can watch they can watch their kids, let alone watch three kids. So, and again, maybe you're thinking, well, hey, that's your problem. It's not, it's not a problem for me. I can make it to the theater. No problem. Okay. But they had your money already. That's what you need to understand. If you are in that position and I'm not, and I'm not, you know, I'm not mad at you. I'm not jealous of you. What I'm saying is if you're in that position, they've got your money already. They don't have the money from people like me. Maybe I'm an exception because I'm going to find a way to go. But still, they don't have the money from working family, working families like my, like, like my family, especially when you're talking about multiple children. The amount of money that needs to be invested in order for people to, people to see movies in that aspect is astronomical far beyond the price of the ticket. So nine times out of ten... You've got families like mine, and again, I can only use myself as an example, but you've got families like mine that are only going to see a couple movies a year, no matter how much you want to see a certain movie, because you just can't afford it. And you know what ends up happening to a lot of these families? They wait for the movie to hit streaming or video on demand services or Blu-ray, DVD, things like that. It happens all the time, way more than you think it does. So to come out and say that or to come out and claim that Black Widow would have made all this extra money had it been released in theaters, I don't think you can categorically say that. And I'm not sure where this lawsuit's really going to go. And there's a lot of details that I'm sure still need to be released. There's a lot more to the story. Is this going to have a huge impact going forward? Sure it is. Absolutely it is. But to say that everybody that spent their money to watch Black Widow on Disney Plus could have gone to the theater is not a true statement at all. 100% not a true statement. So that's something that I think really needs to be put into consideration. On the flip side of that, you kind of have to ask yourself, and, and I'm going to preface this by saying maybe they did this. You know, we have no information saying that they didn't, but you could ask yourself, well, why didn't Disney just do what Warner Brothers did? With the whole HBO Max deal, you know, Warner Brothers reportedly spent 200 million bucks compensating talent for these movies going to HBO Max and theaters same day. And, you know, there's no lawsuits currently. I mean, you saw, you know, Legendary and Warner Brothers kind of battle a little bit over over Dune. But now that's going to be released on HBO Max and in theaters same day. So clearly that got worked out. But why wouldn't you just to avoid the publicity if you're Disney? Go to Scarlett Johansson's team and say, look, here's what we're going to do. Instead of the percentage that you'd have gotten from theaters, here's the percentage we'll give you from the streaming, streaming revenue, and we can all call it a day. And, you know, negotiate it however you want to. Now, Johansson's side saying that they reached out and got no response. Maybe that's true. Maybe that isn't. Again, I'm not here to take sides or tell you what happened. I can't know. I wasn't in the room. What I can tell you is, is that at the end of the day, it feels like this could have been avoided. But using a statement like without justification, when we are still, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, feeling the effects of a pandemic, whether or not you think we should be immaterial, it's happening, it's here, and it's affecting day-to-day -day lives. Maybe not yours, but it is affecting day-to-day -day lives. And I'm not going to get in, I'm absolutely 100% not getting in the pandemic debate here. I'm just saying that it is a factor. And at the time, it was a justification for 
possibly doing what Disney did with Black Widow. Will they do it again? Maybe. I don't know that this lawsuit's going to scare them off. All I'm saying is the one statement they should have left out of this thing is without justification because that's not only going to gaslight some people, but that statement could ultimately be the undoing of this lawsuit. But this is going to be a long legal battle. I don't think we're going to be hearing the last of this anytime soon. Again, 100% my opinion. I have no inside information or anything like that. I'm just thinking out loud as to what I see as a fan for this on its surface. Here's something that really shocked me, and this was news that came from Comic-Con at home, which I'll talk about here in just a second as a whole. But Warner Brothers TV announced that the character of John Constantine would no longer be played by Matt Ryan on DC's Legends of Tomorrow. As a matter of fact, the character is going to be retired after this sixth season. Now, that doesn't mean Ryan's leaving the show. He is going to return for season seven. It's going to be in a new original role of Dr. Gwyn Davies. Now, the character is described as an eccentric scientist from the early 20th century who might be the team's only hope next season. Now, it's funny because Matt Ryan actually came out and said, you know, John will walk his path alone. And we know that. And he said it's time. He actually said the time has come for John to part ways with legends and for me to part ways with John, which is one of the saddest statements I've heard in forever. Uh, just side note before I forget to mention this, Amy Pemberton going to be bringing Gideon to life in live action, but this time as a series regular coming up with DC's Legends of Tomorrow next season. I think that's going to be super, super great. Can't wait to see where that's going to go. But back to Matt Ryan for a second. It's hard for us as fans, especially for me, as somebody who loves the character of John Constantine and everything that Matt Ryan has brought to that role because he's been special in that role. Let's just call a spade a spade here. But it's hard as fans to not want to see that continue on forever, right? And, And that's not to say that he won't eventually become John Constantine again, right? But... You kind of, at the same time, I was upset at first. I'll be honest. I was upset at first. I want to see John continue on the show. I want to see Matt Ryan play Constantine forever. It's just selfishly, that's what I want. But then you look at it on the surface and you go, this is what DC's Legends of Tomorrow does. I mean, look what they did with Macy Richardson Sellers and and them changing her character. Uh, They even did it with Wentworth Miller. To an extent, right? Now, that was more of a crossover type deal, but you kind of get where I'm going with this. It's not the first time that we've seen Legends of Tomorrow change characters up a little bit. They've, they've done it with Zari. This is a show that has a history of doing this. So why so many fans are surprised that this is happening, I'm not quite sure. And I got myself as one of them at first. I was like, you know, what the hell? What are we doing here? And then I remembered, oh, yeah, this is just what they do. And you have to appreciate them for that, for one. And for two, you have to expect it. Okay, that's one thing that I think is lost in all this. Is that this is just what DC's Legends of Tomorrow does. This is something that they have a track record for. So you can't really be shocked when they do this. Even if it is a beloved character like Matt Ryan's John Constantine. But I just, I have a gut feeling. He hasn't hung up the trench coat for the last time yet. I really think we'll see Matt Ryan back as Constantine at some point. I do want to talk about Comic-Con at Home 2021 as a whole. And with all due respect, I actually thought the last Comic-Con at Home was pretty successful. There was a decent amount of big news that came out of it, some big trailers, announcements, things like that. Largely for me, this was a huge yawn fest. For Comic-Con at home. I'm, I'm just being honest. I think that Comic-Con at home lacked the sizzle this year. And maybe that's because of certain circumstances of, you know, what's coming out when, who decided to skip it this year, which is also a huge factor that kind of worked against them. But I, I cannot think of too many panels where I was like, oh, I got to see this. And that's no disrespect to any of the projects that actually presented at Comic-Con at home is because, you know, we find out when Lucifer season six was coming out, which is going to be in September. That was surprising. We got a lot of walking dead news. A lot of it. We kind of already knew. 
and I say kind of because we didn't have exact details, but we sort of, you know, understood where things were going. You got some new trailers, some new clips, and things like that. But as far as a wow factor, you didn't really have that. Like, remember last Comic-Con at home, you had that clip from The Boys, right, with the whale scene from the season, from this last season of The Boys. That was a wow factor moment. You had the New Mutants trailer where, granted, it was disappointing, not, not trailer, but panel. And granted, it was disappointing because you didn't get what you thought you were going to get. But at the same time, you, fans wanted to know what was going to be said and what the end result of that panel was going to be. I didn't feel that same urgency for Comic-Con at home this year. And maybe I'm alone in this. Maybe there, maybe you found something or a few things that you're like, oh, well, I'm so glad that I got to watch that Comic-Con at home panel because otherwise I wouldn't have known that. Again, the, the, the Constantine news was probably, at least for me anyway, the biggest news of Comic-Con at home. And you might say that's bravo for Warner Brothers. Or you could also say that's your biggest news. That's it. And, you know, you're going to argue with me on that, I'm sure. Because there was certainly some Star Trek stuff. I'm getting ready to talk about the Prodigy trailer here in just a second. But look at the things that came out after Comic-Con at home. I'm not saying that the whole Scarlett Johansson thing would have been a story at Comic-Con at home. But, I mean, you had the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer, which dropped after the fact. Which, again, I'll talk about. You have the second season trailer for C, Apple TV+. Plus Again, talk about that in a minute. That did not drop during the con. So you look at all of the things that have come out this week that came out after Comic-Con at home, and you go, well, what? Why didn't they just present it at the show? Why Why wouldn't you do that? And that's a darn good question. I think that the, the at-home convention, we could be done with that. I think that, you know, there, there's a back-to-normal aspect, and again, not going to get in a pandemic argument, but I think that, you know, when we were starved for things like this in the throes of the pandemic, then that is what made this in part successful. And now that you want to call it pandemic COVID fatigue, you want to call it, you know, things getting back to normal a little bit more and people just wanting to be outside and doing things more rather than watching another virtual anything. Maybe that's a factor. Maybe even studios are saying, you know, we just don't want to do this. Because we'd rather do our own thing. And then the spotlight's all on us because it's ours. There were a lot of things working against Comic-Con at home this year. I'm not saying they should have done an in-person convention. I'm not going I'm not going to go into that. All I think is for the spectacle that is Comic-Con, there was a very lacking of spectacle in Comic-Con at home this year. But hopefully things will just be back to normal this coming year. And it just won't be an issue anymore because wouldn't that be great? Let's talk about some of the trailers that have come out this week. Star Trek Prodigy from going to be coming to Paramount Plus this fall. And what you basically see is it's it's the typical kid wants to get out of the boring place that he's in. Friends end up tagging along with him. And oh, by the way, they just end up finding a Starfleet. Well, you, you, you assume it's a Starfleet ship, right? They end up finding a ship. It takes them away, and that's when the adventure begins, sort of thing. So, and again, it's a very quick teaser, but you can act, you can already tell, first of all, it's beautifully animated, but second of all, you can already tell that this is going to be one of those shows that you're going to be able to, be able to enjoy with your kids. It doesn't lean too far in being just for kids. It absolutely doesn't lean too far into being for just adults. This is one of those shows that really feels like you're going to be able to enjoy with your kids. I think that's hugely important, especially if you want your kids to be Trekkies too. You got to hook them early with something. This might be the thing that gets the hook, and then you reel them in with the good stuff that you love from your childhood as well. So, Star Trek Prodigy, yeah, looking forward to that this fall on Paramount Plus. Then you look at the new Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer. This movie, of course, coming out on November the 11th from Sony Pictures, and you sort of Blending the old with the new already here. You've got, you know, Spangler's relatives that are going to the old house. I'm not going to rehash what we already know. But the focus on the younger cast in this one, I think, was really interesting in showing the two dynamics between the two children and how they differ and things like that and how mom's struggling with those differences. 
and things like that. And then you get to see some more of the ghosts. And then you get to see the demon dogs that are popping out. I mean, it almost, you almost saw, I thought we saw Zool there for a second. As a matter of fact, too. So, and again, I'm sure that, that that's probably not exactly what I saw. But at the same time, you go, okay, so you seem to want to blend the old with the new in in a certain way here. And then you see a pre, you see the, the ghost trap being ridden on like a little remote controlled car while Ecto-1's flying around the corner. I loved that. And the enthusiasm in general in these scenes seems cranked way up. And then you, of course... You know, Raymond Stance answering the phone at the end of the trailer, right? So it's a little bit of a tease of the original cast coming back. But again, the key is in how do you make that make sense and make it good and interesting. That's the one key that I think we've got to find out with Ghostbusters Afterlife when it hits theaters on November the 11th. Really quickly, I wanted to talk about the season two trailer for C from Apple TV+. Plus. That series is going to be returning on August the 27th. And I got to tell you, if you just want to tell me that you're going to give me Dave Batista versus Jason Momoa, sign me up. I'm there. Where do I need to be? And for how long? Because, well, it's going to be eight episodes. That much I can tell you. But it's basically Strange Brothers. You got Baba Voss, who is, of course, Momoa's character, trying to keep his family and his people out of the war, right? Well, that's not necessarily going to happen now because his estranged brother, Ido Voss, who's played by Dave Batista, is on the other side of this thing. And guess what? He kind of hates his brother, and we still have the whole whoever controls, you know, you know, the site is going to return, and whoever can be on this, have someone that is sighted on their side, that turns the tide. But the, it's that relation and that clear hatred between these two brothers that's really seemed to be fueling this season. And and again, I'm not going to get into too much detail about this, but it's just visually it's so well shot. And I think that the setting is absolutely perfect for this series, and it brings an eerie tone to this really dramatic story and the action sequences as well. See season two, a must-see as far as I'm concerned on Apple TV Plus the end of this month. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, I want to thank my wonderful guest, H. Greenblatt, for joining me to talk about Jellystone this week. Make sure you're watching that this weekend on HBO Max. Also, for our new sponsor, Upstart, make sure you go to upstart.com slash nerdy. Start lowering those monthly payments. Find easy ways to pay off your debt with Upstart. Also, follow along with us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook, always online at downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.